Welcome to the Lubar Executive Education Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about how the pandemic has changed the way much of the workforce views work and their current job, and how leaders can effectively lead themselves and their teams during this challenging time. With me today is Paul Glover, author of Workquake, Making the Seismic Shift to a Knowledge Economy. Paul is a workforce performance coach, helping people not only survive, but thrive in the knowledge economy. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for taking time to be with me today. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a privilege to be talking to you and your audience. To get us started, after dealing with a global pandemic for well over a year, the Gallup organization is reporting that only 36% of the workforce is engaged, leading to what is being called the Great Resignation. What do you make of this? Well, for me, it's a true test of leadership. Uh, and the true test of leadership is, are you actively engaging with the employees that you count on at the front line to generate both the business and the profit? And it's apparent from the, uh, the number of disengaged that Gallup has identified, uh, 17% actively disengaged, only 30% engaged, that leadership is not doing a good job understanding what they need to do to engage with the employees in the workforce. Therefore, guess what? They're leaving. What have the most successful leaders been doing these days that others can learn from? Well, the first thing they've done is recognize the need for flexibility. The pandemic gives us an immense opportunity to finally break the stranglehold the industrial age concept of command and control leadership has on us. Uh, everybody knows the knows not to say the words. Unfortunately, they don't know the actions that have to follow that statement that we are no longer engaged in command and control. Uh, I think that the perfect uh, the perfect example of that is the battle that's taking place over work from home. The reality is, forty percent of employees who are not frontline employees are able to do their jobs in the comfort of their own house. And yet we have employers requiring a return to a workplace that the employees don't even believe are safe. The only reason that that's required is because employers still believe they've got to see employees work before they believe they're working. It just makes me want to vomit. We need to learn the lesson. Flexibility is as important as pay to employees. When we talk about work-life balance, we're really talking about work-life integration. You want your employees to be available all the time requires that you give them time to take care of their lives. And so to me, we, we are struggling with this. And I hope that the pandemic is absolutely going to convince employers that the way to engage with employees is three things. First, pay them fairly. I find it extraordinary that we finally come to the realization that $7.70 an hour is not a living wage. You know, it's only taken us a couple of centuries. And by the way, when I look at the sides now that say $15 an hour, $20 an hour for frontline employees, it's a recognition of the value and the hard work that is required for those employees to provide for a company to be successful. Thank God we're starting to look at this. And we're starting to realize that equitable pay requires that we take into account what it costs employees to actually live in our country. So pay equity. That's a good thing. The other thing is fairness. 
I think that the reality is that we don't treat people fairly in the workplace, and we need to take a different look at that, right? I find it so intriguing that we can look at the 17% of disengaged employees uh, and find out that employers are doing absolutely nothing about them. These are the people that I call the dead. They need to be exercised from the workforce. They are toxic and the employers struggle to eliminate them. Uh, and by the way, this does two things. First, I always found it interesting when a toxic team member is finally released, uh, the first thing that the team leader has asked is, why did it take you so long? Because everybody else knew that they were toxic and that toxicity spreads it does not stay contained. It spreads to the entire team. It's a morale killer. It drives off talent. But the second question is often not verbalized. And that is, we're starting to question your competency as a team leader that you allowed this toxic person to stay on the team and do what they've done to destroy our ability to be high performance. So the reality is your competency is being questioned by your reluctance to do the right thing. So that, that fairness and equity has got to be a part of that. That to me is where, where we're starting to see a reality. If you want to keep your talent, you better recognize that they're worth keeping. And second, you better do what's necessary to provide them with a safe environment. And you need to make sure that they're appropriately paid. They feel safe in the workplace. And second, uh, you know what? They're going to be engaged if you pay attention to them. It's amazing what happens when you pay attention to your people and listen to them a little bit. Also, I, I couldn't agree more with you know, flexibility costs very little, if anything, for an organization, and they get so much more in return in most cases. And your frontline workers, they're really entrusted with your brand of the organization. So it's good to see the wages coming up and people getting rewarded for representing the brand and, and being the, the front line to the customers. One of the things we talk about in many of our programs is about emotional intelligence, which is what really sets leaders apart as they take on higher levels of responsibility and roles within their organizations. What are some common blind spots that you see and what can leaders do to identify blind spots that can derail their career progression? Well, the first thing that, that any leader needs to do is to not believe the bullshit that other people are telling them about their ability to lead. Uh, you need to go to the source, uh, the frontline folk, the people who report to you, and you need to do the, the necessary questioning. And normally, I recommend this through an anonymous 360. And the reason it has to be anonymous is people are afraid of you as a leader. And they know that people don't like to be told that they're not as good as they think they are. And there might be the possibility of retaliation. And nobody wants to tell the, uh, the king that they have no clothes. So the question is, let, let's find out what those blind spots really are. Not what you think they are, but what they really are by going to the people that have to deal with those blind spots and weaknesses on a daily basis. Once you know what those are, the emotional intelligence starts with awareness. You cannot be emotionally intelligent unless you're aware. And being aware means that the information you have to receive about yourself has, has got to be as unfiltered and truthful as possible. Otherwise, you don't recognize blind spots. Uh, that's why we call them blind spots, by the way. You don't see them yourselves. And the people that have the most interest in you knowing what your blind spots are and improving are those people who work for you. They want you to succeed. 
because they know if you succeed, they will succeed. The organization will succeed. So they will tell you the truth if you give them the opportunity. And one of the things that I've been doing now since the pandemic has altered the opportunity to do things in person. I've been asking the leaders in my coaching program to do what I call the Pulse 360, which is go on and with an individual Zoom call, ask somebody the 360 issues. By the way, you can do this only in the context of psychological safety. People have to trust you are not going to retaliate. So first, let's establish the level of trust by by two things. I, I think trust is so simple and yet we forget. First, do what you're supposed to do. Leaders have no problem telling everybody else about expectations. The reality is, when do they get to hear what the expectations are from the workforce? And I really value the fact that millennials and Gen Zs believe that they have the right to tell people what their expectations are. I know that you and I, Mike, growing up, we would have expected a sharp slap if we had tried to tell our manager what they needed to do to get better. So the question is to have a dialogue about expectations, not a monologue. Find out what those expectations are going both ways, and then make some decisions about whether you want to pay attention to and take the action necessary to improve and eliminate blind spots. Yeah, it would have been a very different conversation 20, 30 years ago if you tried to do that, for sure. I also know, Paul, you're a big proponent of storytelling. Why is this such an important skill for leaders, and how can somebody get better at that skill? Well, first, you're right. I was a federal court trial lawyer. And I tell people my story about uh, being very good at getting out of law school and starting my practice. Uh, I thought that I was excellent at portraying the facts. And I was uh, very linear. I mean, law school teaches you that, right? They teach you brief writing. I'm a terrible writer because I've always figured out how to do a brief. So the brief is very concise and it's to the point and it's focused and it's nothing but facts. And uh, so when I got out my first two trials, I lost both of them and obviously very disappointed in that thought that I'd done a great job portraying the facts and an experienced trial attorney was in the audience and he said, hey, for the price of a steak dinner, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to, to be a successful trial lawyer. So I, I figured after paying three and a half years of law school that a steak dinner was cheap to learn how to be successful. So we went out to dinner, and by the way, the steak dinner is not what hurt me, but the 30-year-old bottle of scotch he consumed about put, did me in. And you know what he told me? He said, you're really good at telling the facts, but you are not telling them a story. He said, you need to tell the jury a story. You need to develop a narrative. And they cannot be bystanders in this story. They have to be participants. That means you have to draw them in with the feelings. So if you don't have the feelings attached, the emotional attachment to the story, to the facts, you're not going to be successful. And that's what I tell the people in my, the leaders in my coaching program is you have got to communicate on a different level. Tell them your narrative, explain your vision, your mission, and you do it with emotion. Because if it is your vision, if you're not emotional about that, you need to reevaluate it. So if you've got that feeling, that attachment, that's so strong, it makes you want to succeed with this vision or mission, you need to take that emotion and share it. You need to draw everybody in who's going to participate with you on this journey together to achieve the the mission or the goal. And that's all about 
exactly doing that is telling the story, telling your own story first. By the way, that is the most vulnerable thing any leader can do. Tell the story about how they got to where they are to be the leader means you have to, you have to not only talk about your successes, but you also have to talk about your failures. And you know, we've been taught never to talk about our failures because that demeans us, it weakens us. It shows that we're not as strong as we need to be. You absolutely need to show vulnerability, show authenticity, and you will draw people to you. Uh, I do what I call the three A's for engagement, right? Attraction, attention, appreciation. Attraction is can you draw people to you as a part of your team? And you don't do that by telling them the facts. You do that by developing that narrative that shows feelings and emotions and the facts. Making that emotional connection is so key to communicating effectively, which is a huge part of being a leader, right? It's all about communication, over-communicate. Uh, we talk about that all the time and you just can't communicate enough. And also being vulnerable, very important to being a leader and being successful as a leader because nobody wants to be the hero leader and everybody has weaknesses and you've got to be able to share that. And you know, Mike, as a coach, uh, I, I, I tell everybody that that is exactly what I do as a part of establishing trust between myself and the person is I tell them that I am a flawed human being. I've made more mistakes than they ever will. And I'm going to I'm going to tell them those mistakes because I believe it's important for them to know that you can make a mistake and still be successful. Because we've got this thing in our head that, that once we acknowledge that we're not as good as we should be, we can't get to where we need to go. Absolutely not the case. What other communication advice do you have for leaders? So one of the things that I advise, again, those in my leadership uh, program, uh, coaching program, is that they, they uh, join an improv group. Now, by the way, this scares the crap out of most people. Uh, the interesting thing about improv, of course, is first it's spontaneous which is a cool thing. It, it gives you the opportunity to be very creative. And it has a different perspective because the concept of improv is based on two people operating together or more than two, but two people at least operating together in a give and take relationship. Uh, by the way, my wife and I joined an improv group uh, prior prior pandemic and, uh, and she was excellent at it. I, on the other hand, was a jerk. I, I told me, he said, dude, you've got to be willing to give somebody the opportunity to participate uh, rather than just hog center stage, right? And I said, I started thinking, you know, this is one of those things that most leaders don't know how to do. How do we give the opportunity for someone else to participate with us when we have a conversation, a dialogue? Because we're so used to doing the monologue that we forget about that as being the way that you get participation. So I would advise that, that anybody who's interested in first, the spontaneity and creativity, if you don't think you've got it, this will spark it. But the second thing is, it suddenly makes you aware of the, of the need to give someone the opportunity, joining in a conversation with you. I highly recommend it. Uh, we went through the entire program. Uh, my wife got A's, I got C's. But I, it was a uh, it was a learning experience for me, and I've actually practiced the improv rules, and uh, and it is uh, it absolutely works 
either in a professional or personal setting. So that's one of those things that, given the opportunity uh, with pandemic lifting, find an improv group, go to it, uh, and and leave leave your your pride behind. Right? This is all an exercise in humility, and most of us we 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 need a little more humility in our lives. I couldn't agree more. And just having the mindset, regardless of how good you might be at improv or not, having that mindset of inviting somebody else to or giving them the opportunity to be a part of the conversation is, is a huge game changer in my opinion. Yeah, one other area I wanted to talk with you about is trust and decision-making and sometimes just getting out of the way of your team. And I know you're a big proponent of self-directed teams. Can you spend a couple minutes describing how self-directed teams function and how could somebody go about making that shift from maybe more of a traditional team to a self-directed team? Well, first, the, the traditional teams are, are semi-functional because of the, the nature and the restrictions on the ability to make decisions. They can't actually take the initiative and accomplish more than they're allowed to under the restrictions. So obviously, from my perspective, you want to empower the self-directed team by giving them the opportunity to make decisions. Everyone says, well, they can't make decisions above their level. I understand that. I'm not saying that they should be making decisions uh, at the at the very top of the executive uh, branch. But at the same time, within their scope of responsibility, they need to have the authority to make the decisions. So let's let's first define what their authority is. And second, let's let's empower them to make the decisions to go along with that that authority. It only makes sense to me. Uh, otherwise, if you, by the way, I look at this as being about trust. I, I'm so big on the T word. If you're telling me that you don't, you're not going to let me do something. I want to know why. If I'm not trained, if I'm not trained or developed, hey, let's get let's get that out of the way, right? Because I'm not going to let somebody who doesn't know what they're doing have authority. I'm just not going to do it. I, and why would you? So I'm going to give you the training you need to be a decision maker, to understand what has to be done and develop the action plan to do it. Uh, so, so good. Let's get that out of the way so you can trust that I'm competent, right? Because I want to be competent. I truly believe that that 36% of engaged is not what most of the workforce wants. We've got the 17% disengaged, which I say get rid of. It's that chunk in the middle that you need to move into the engaged category. And you do that by saying, I'm going to trust you to do your job. I'm going to empower you to do your job. We're going to put you on a team and I'm going to give you the training and the development necessary. Then I'm going to make sure you have the resources so that you can actually do the job rather than have you try to make tools out of cardboard. I'm going to actually give you tools and then, and then we're going to watch you do what you do. And by the way, I'm going to give you a manager. I'm going to even eliminate that word. I hate the word manager. I don't believe anybody wants to be managed. I'm going to give you a team captain, not even a team leader, a team captain. And this team captain is going to have the skill set necessary to actually occupy that role. <laughs> Once again, going back to my friends at Gallup, they show through their survey that only 18% of all managers have the skill sets necessary to manage. That's why we rely on command and control, by the way, because the guy is not, he feels so uncomfortable and and he has no confidence in his ability to actually do anything then watch you work make sure you're working that's our problem let's train this group up so what are you going to train them to do i don't want them to be a manager i want them to be a team 
team captain. I'm going to teach them to coach because coaching is huge. I'm also going to teach them to facilitate and mediate. You know why? Teams naturally have conflict uh, and they continually to need to have somebody that facilitates and mediates. So that's what I'm looking for. And I'm going to I'm going to make sure that that's the team lead, the captain that you get. And then I'm going to reward you for doing above and beyond. And by the way, everybody goes, what does that mean? I guarantee you right now that the potential of, of self-directed empowered team has not even been tapped. We need to recognize the potential and then reward for exceeding the potential. So to me, that's what this self-directed team is about. By the way, they just don't spring up overnight. Like I said, the first thing you got to do is get rid of the working dead. Then you take the rest of the folks and you go through the training process to make sure they're competent. Then you turn them loose with, guess what, the team captain. Uh, nobody's willing to do this. I'm shocked by it. I'm shocked that self-directed teams are not the way of doing business. They better be because the companies that are able to establish, and there, and there are a few, are seeing the potential being realized and the profit and performance go up dramatically. Yeah, I'm starting to see a little more uptick in the self-directed teams. And also you have some organizations that are definitely resisting it and uh, they're resisting that change, which is something we talk about all the time too in leadership, just trying to get people to try something new and organizations to uh, change for the betterment of the future. Before we wrap up, what final advice do you have for leaders listening to this episode so they could be successful in the post-pandemic world? Well, first recognize that things are going to be different whether you like it or not. So stop, stop being obstinate about trying to go back to the way it was in 2019. That is not the next normal. It just can't be. How do I know that? Well, we have 10 million employees who are now thinking about, not necessarily doing it, but thinking about going to other jobs. That should tell you or give you a message. If your people are leaving wholesale on you, how about you decide that it's your fault, not theirs? They're actually looking for a better workplace. So recognize the fact it's going to be different. Start to accept flexibility as a part of the new norm. Well-being is also a part of that. And I, I'm a big believer in if you want people fully engaged, you better engage the family. To me, that's where the glue and the loyalty, the relationship building takes place at a different level. You want the person who's the breadwinner, maybe both are working. Uh, Childcare is a big issue. There's so many areas that can be examined. And you look at your employees as stakeholders, not just employees, but stakeholders in your business. And if you don't see them that way, I think you're missing that opportunity to, to see the potential for your organization grow. And obviously, employ the three A's. Attraction has nothing to do with how good looking you are, by the way. Uh, attraction is all about enthusiasm and positivity and energy that draws people to your organization and to you and your mission. And that includes being a good communicator. It's always interesting on the 360, that's the one that most shocks leaders. When they get back the results of a 360 and they find out that they are communicating by telepathy, it shocks them. But that just shows you how important communication is at all levels. And you need to actually do the training so that you have a skill set that allows you to be a better communicator. So that's the attraction. Then, then of course, how about some attention? Attention is all about making sure, once again, I've already described it. It's giving you the resources, giving you the training, giving you the opportunity to do your job and to do it to the best of your ability. 
and also to make sure that those people who aren't committed, and I truly believe we can get to commitment if we try hard enough to the mission, to the vision, need to be off the team. And the last thing is, how about some appreciation? I find it so interesting that if we're sitting at a restaurant and we ask a stranger to pass us the salt, we say thank you. And yet at the end of a work week, could be the work week from hell. Everybody is leaving on Friday to go home. And you know what we tell them? See you next week. This is like an invitation back to hell. Oh my God, the last thing I wanna do is come back and repeat this. How about if we say, you know how much I appreciate the effort that you've put into this week? Look at what we've accomplished. And it's because of you. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate that. And by the way, here's a coupon. Here's a here's a debit card for you and your family to go out to dinner this weekend. That's how much I appreciate you. To me, that this is where we got to go with this. This is where leaders have got to go. And failing to do that is going to show that they're not going to be successful moving forward in the next normal. Thank you, Paul, for taking time to talk with me about some different ways leaders can differentiate themselves and, and thrive in the ever-changing world of work. I love some of your suggestions here, especially your three A's at the end. That's it's really easy to remember and do a self-check uh, almost on a daily basis of that. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciated the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. If you're interested in more detail from Paul, please pick up a copy of WorkQuake, Making the Seismic Shift to a Knowledge Economy, which is currently available on amazon.com. In closing, I'd like to take a moment and thank our listeners. We wish you the best of luck as you move forward on your leadership journey. Please check back regularly for additional episodes.